All right. This is session four of our series on Revelation, and today we're going to look at chapters six and seven. Um, in the last session, session three, we, we were left with a picture of Jesus who is worthy to break the seals and open this scroll, which helps to explain the meaning behind human history. As the seals are broken, we now see epic destructive forces unleashed on the earth. What's happening here, Nicholas? <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. Um, yeah, the, the, it's an important thing to, to say. Um, there's a lot about these next chapters that's quite mysterious and on a scale that is pretty mind-blowing and that we're not we're not not used to frankly and it's it's quite troubling um to read um sort of the the events that unfold in these is particularly in chapter six i think before we start there's probably a few things to say that are going to help us make sense of how john's put together these chapters and the following chapters um The first thing to say is I think um, as Christians, especially modern Christians, we're quite used to interpreting um, our Christian faith and the work of the cross, um, um, Jesus' rule, all of these sorts of things in quite an individualistic, personal way. And that's that's good and that's right because our salvation is personal. It's, it's gone, you know, right to our, our hearts and it transforms us from the inside out. But something quite different is happening in these visions of John where we're seeing the person and work of Jesus on a scale that's just epic. Mm. Um, it encompasses not just the entire earth but all of heaven. It's thoroughly... Um, cosmic and it redefines it redefines how we think about everything in a sense and and we've seen in the last chapter that 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 event in history of Jesus' death on the cross is actually the defining moment in all of time and space. It, it changes everything that's gone before and everything that comes comes after, um, and all the world and the unfolding of um, God's redemptive plan and the progress of history, all of these things are really shaped by that defining event. Um, and so what we're seeing in these these two chapters and the chapters that follow is sort of the outplaying of the cross in a, in a really profound way. Um, and and what, what we see in Chapter 6 is the understanding that the cross really is at Jesus' work, um, going to a cross and and dying and dealing with sin and death and evil and Satan and all of those things, um, really is the judgment of the world. And so um, these series of seven seals that will be broken in Chapter 6 are really... Um, um, John beginning to look at the outworking of the judgment of the world. That's what's going on here. Um, 
before before we get move on, it's important to recognize that Jesus thoroughly understood that that's what the cross was going to do. Um, and there's two key passages in the New Testament in the Gospels that um, show that he quite clearly understood that going to the cross just just wasn't about saving individuals from their own sin and separation, but was doing something. Um, on a cosmic scale that involved the judgment of the of the whole world. So I don't want to take um, a long time looking at these passages, but but they are worth noting. So um, just briefly, Matthew chapter ten, uh, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus speaking to the disciples says, "Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword." Um, Again, it, uh, this is a picture of Jesus recognising that um, he's doing a judging work that will separate. And, and he goes on to talk about the fact that it will separate um, a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, etc. Um, there'll be a sifting and a separation um, um, that, that will d- determine who, f- who follows him and who doesn't follow him, etc., over, over in John chapter um, 12, we see a more explicit reference to the cross being the judgment of the world. So, again, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, um, around verse 30, uh, this voice was your, for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So he's clearly speaking about his death and he's recognising that it's going to have um, implications for the whole world, that, it, that it's a, ju- a saving event but it's a judgement as well. Um, and it's this judgement, it, it's, this, it's this aspect, it's the judgement aspect that um, really is prominent. Um, when we get to chapter six in Re- Revelation, so you, what do we have here? We've got a picture at the end of chapter five of this, the rule of this great king in heaven, um, the Lamb. And what we start to see as he unlocks the, each of the seals is the manifestation of the victory of the Lamb. So you actually see um, manifest or exposed um, these forces at work that are behind the tumultuous movements and events in history and um, in their in their exposing they're being judged um, seen for what they are and ultimately um, God will deal with all of these um, spiritual forces in turn at the end but um, these series of judgments are on a world scale and they're also in sets of seven, which is quite interesting. So you have seven seals, but what we'll see through this middle part of the book of Revelation, um, it's followed by seven trumpets and then seven plagues slash bowls of wrath. Um, so this these three lots of sets of seven um, uh, is quite complex but if, if we take some time just to make sense of, of the structure of what John's doing, it, it helps us understand the point he's trying to make in encouraging these, these first century 
um, Christians who he's writing to. Um, the first thing to say, and it's a simple thing, and we've said it before, is that the number seven is significant. So seven is a picture of something that's complete or full. So um, it's like uh, uh, God's not leaving or the lamb's not leaving anything unjudged. Mm. Um, the, jud- the judgment will be full and complete and will cover everything mm. um, is the picture. Um, the other thing to say is that these, the way these sets of seven play out is quite interesting. What you generally have in each of the three sets of seven is you have um, the revelation of the first six in the series and then there's an intermission where there's sometimes quite a, a significant chunk of text, a, a chunk of the vision that um, moves away from the, the set of seven judgments and looks at God's gracious redemptive purpose in the midst of the judgment. So what he's doing with his people while these, these judging works are going on. And then um, the vision returns to the last of the set of seven but just as that last of the set of seven is being unveiled or um, what happens is it be, it's overtaken by the new set. So you don't actually get to see the seventh. Um, what you get to see is the beginning of the, the new set of, of seven. So in the case of the seals, once the seven seals open, it's open and then the vision shifts to seven trumpets and, and a new series um, of um, visions of judgment emerges. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some things that we could say that are quite helpful about about this, these structural elements. And the first is always keep in mind that what he's what he's doing here is encouraging people who are suffering and dying for the sake of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So. Um, when when we're looking at these sets of seven with the the um, period between the sixth and seventh judgment, um, focusing on a gracious saving work of God, that's directly speaking to those that are suffering and dying for the sake of the gospel in um, in in the first century, but but also as well. Um, to, to us in the present. The main game that's going on, though, is actually this intermission in between the sixth and the seventh judgment. That's really showing um, God's uh, redemptive purpose in the midst of judgment. And we've talked about already, if you remember back in our study of chapter 2 and 3, saving and judging always goes forward together. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that we recognise that that an expression of God's saving work and his love and an expression of his judgment are not two opposite things. Mm. Um, The work of the cross in the world going forward in the proclamation of of the gospel that is the most powerful force at work in the world from the time that um, Jesus resurrects until the time he'll come back Mm. is a loving judgment. It's it's a saving work and a judging work that's happening concurrently at the same time. And what we see really powerfully with these sets of seven is 
How are we to think about how God's dealing with his people and looking after his people in the midst of these epic judgments that are affecting the whole earth? Mm. Um, so that's a really, that's a really um, decisive and important thing that would have been so encouraging for the fir- those first century Christians under the pump. Um, but also so encouraging for us that in the midst of dealing with sin properly and exposing evil and exposing all the things in the world that that are distorted and corrupted and fractured and rebellious, in the midst of all that, God is um, showing his mercy and grace and compassion, gathering for himself a people for his name Mm -hmm. that he takes care of, provides for and blesses and and showers with his life. Um, that that's the picture that emerges in each of these set of seven. So, what we have what we have to do here is hold two things at once. As creatures um, responding to this uh, God of the universe doing his thing. We can contemplate a God who's rescued us personally and shown us his love and um, gathered us as part of his people to share his life. But don't miss, he also is a ruler that has the whole world in his hands. And while it blows our brains and it's too big for us to contemplate the sorts of decisions and the sort of mysterious scale that God's working on, um, he is working on that scale. That's part of the reality of him bringing together his creation and redeeming it. And um, it can leave us shuddering and shocked at times um, because uh, when when his holy life encounters his enemies, look out. It's, it's enormous, the implications. And when he makes judgments, and starts consuming and dealing with things that um, are counter to his life, um, it's devastating, the the scale of his judgments. Mm. But, again, just to say again, those suffering and dying would be deeply encouraged by what's going on in these chapters. Nothing happens that doesn't pass through the throne room of God. Mm. So, the most devastating um, judgments poured out on the earth, whatever else you can say about them, is that uh, God's in control, that there's nothing that, that's happening that's out of control or unconquered. So even the, even the um, evil forces that are counter to God and his rule um, are operating on a leash, so to speak, that they are they are doing God's bidding, um, whether they like it or not, um, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's a really really important thing to understand. That even the devil is God's devil in a sense. Um, there's not there's there's nothing that's running out of control, counter to God's kingdom rule. That that's just a law unto themselves. Everything is just responding to the commands that are coming from the throne room. Um, there's no alternate voice directing things in the world um, once the cross is in the field. Let's make a point too. Oh, do you want to ask a question, Hannah? I can see furrowed brows. Well, I just feel like 
I'm interpreting what you're saying is that God is is dictating dictating might not be the right word, but he's thinking up evil things that people can do in order to bring about his purpose. That's a really important question. Um, And we're in the realm of something quite mysterious here. But I think there are some things that we can say um, if, if we say them carefully that can be helpful. The first thing to say is that God is in control mm-hmm. um, and there's nothing outside of God's control. But that doesn't imply that God is thinking up evil things for people to do to bring about his purpose. Mm-hmm. What perhaps is a helpful way to approach this is think about examples from the scriptures where um, uh, human responses can shed some light on what we're talking about. And the two classic places is thinking about Pharaoh Mm. in his response to Moses and Mm. the Israelites in Exodus and also Judas in uh, his choices and decisions in relation to Jesus in the New Testament. Mm. Um, In both these situations... What, what we could say for sure is that there's situations where God is in control, but, but there's never a suggestion that God wills evil or wickedness. He doesn't, he doesn't dream up wicked things for people to do mm. to bring about his purpose. What he does is he allows sometimes human beings to run with their rebellious, wicked thinking, mm. and he and he doesn't intervene, mm. but that's not the same as dreaming up wicked things for people to do. Mm-hmm. What what's mysterious is that he will use sin and evil to bring about his purpose. Mm. It's not sin and evil that he's dreamed up; it's come from human beings mm. or rebellious spiritual forces that aren't God, Mm. Um, but he certainly is able to use even wicked things in the world to bring about his purpose. And we see that with Judas, don't we, that that, Mm. um, Judas's decision to betray his saviour is used by God to bring about his purpose. It it was his purpose that Jesus would go to a cross Mm. and would die. Similarly with Pharaoh, um, Pharaoh's uh, rebellious attitude and hard heart and his Mm. refusal to let um, God's people go, um, God used that to actually bring about his purpose, which which was a vindication of himself Mm. and also the rescue of his people Israel. Mm. So um, in both those cases, there's a sense in which how God works things is a judgment. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's really clear here. The, the situation with Israel and Pharaoh is really, really clear. So what, what's going on is by sending plagues to Egypt, what's God doing? Well, it's not God wreaking vengeance on um, Egyptian people primarily. What he's actually doing is exposing the truth 
of Pharaoh's rebellious attitude. Mm. Um, that Egyptians would trust in their false gods over the God of Israel mm. and that they would reject God's word mm. direct to them through the prophet Moses is exposed as utterly rebellious and, um, you know, that their gods, to their gods are totally lacking in power in the face of the one true God. So um, in the mid these plagues are a judgment because they actually ex expose um, through the devastation of Egypt mm. the terrible rebellious choices that Pharaoh's made on behalf of his people. Mm. Um, if you would reject um, God and live opposed to him and choose your own way, you will be exposed. Mm. And that's that's what's going on in Revelation mm. on, a, on a much, much bigger scale. So human history's rollings. Um, since the cross, but with the cross comes the exposure of these rebellious actions and how short-sighted and um, destructive and um, wrong they are. Mm. And so um, these these judgments that are going out in the form of horsemen into the world or whatever. Um, it's not that God's wanting to wreak vengeance on ordinary human beings. Mm. It's he, he's wanting to expose the wickedness of um, the way human beings have pursued their own agendas, their mm. own ways of living, whether that be seen in greedy conquest or and the fruits of it will be seen in war and famine and all of these sorts of things. So he, he's, he's mm. basically exposing the whole human project in rebellion against God is utter folly, utter stupidity. So, so what have we got in Revelation? We have a great and holy king making judgments mm. about his whole creation. Mm. He's bringing about... Um, this process of redemption, sorting out the mess, sorting out all the problems um, through this process of saving and judging. And in the midst of it, you have the mystery of these figures that are being given instructions in the throne room to go out and wreak vengeance on the earth. They aren't good spiritual forces they're they're spiritual forces that are destructive and will ultimately be judged themselves that's the important thing to recognize mm. but the mystery of this great king is that even in the midst of uh their the, the you know these four horsemen or the beast or what the harlot or whatever it might be these figures are doing God's will in the midst of their rebellion. Mm. They are, they are um, whether they like it or not, whether they're, whether they're um, will, doing it willingly or unwillingly, mm. God's using these, these um, ben, um, evil spiritual 
figures and beings mm. to bring about his his final redemptive purpose. Mm. Um, and in the process, he's exposing the dark spiritual forces that are behind all the trouble in the world, um, all the all the all the human engineered problems in the world. Behind them are they are these dark spiritual forces that are at the back of history. Mm. Um, it's probably not a complete answer, but hopefully some of those those points help help us understand a little bit about how God's will and judgment and all of those sort of things go together. Mm -hmm. Um, Just before we get into chapters um, six and seven, I want to say one other little point about timing too. One of the things um, that I think is often misunderstood about these um, sequences of um, judgments is that they're often interpreted in a way that's quite um, uh, what would you say sequential, as as though mm-hmm. as yeah. though what we're what we're looking at is somehow a chronological sequence that you can sort of log against the history of the world and work out where we are at. I, I would say John's actually at pains to do quite the opposite to that and just explaining a little bit about how I'm understanding what's going on here, um, I think you'll see what I mean. So what you have is these sets of seven judgments and um, you have six and then the intermission where people are saved in the midst of mm-hmm. the judgments going on around, mm-hmm. and then the seventh one that constitutes the the end of the end, and we never seem to get to the seventh. What's the point? Why is it that we only witness six? Then the focus shifts to God's um, good redemptive um, purpose in saving his people, and then the seventh is always overlaid by a new set of seven. I think two conclusions are really clear. One is... John's wanting to point out we're not at the seventh. We're not at the end. Mm -hmm. So the message to his readers is um, wherever you think you are in history, know this, we're not right at the end. We're not at seven. Mm. I think the second thing is um, why is the gracious saving work of God always between the sixth judgment and the seventh? Because he's wanting to point out that we're near the end Mm. um, but not at the end. And this is as precise, I think, as John wants to get with these sets of seven. He's wanting people to live recognising that all of these judgments are going on in the world around us all the time. Mm. Um, The world is under judgment and one, two, three, four, five, six are all playing, playing out all the time. Um, and we're near the end, but we're not at the end. Mm-hmm. And the reassuring thing is in the midst of it all, God is preserving his people, protecting, mm-hmm. looking after, strengthening. Adding to. Adding to, yeah, all of these sorts of things in the midst. Um, and, and that all of this is happening in response to the gospel going forward. That's the powerful thing at work in the world that's bringing these judgments, 
that's saving these people out of the world. Um, and we're getting close to seven, but we're not we're not there yet. So it's it's all about encouraging people to recognize um, that God is preserving a people for his name in the midst of this titanic judgment. And and being aware that preservation doesn't mean not dying or suffering. Mm. Um, because in the midst of all this, there's lots of uh, reference to the fact that there's martyrs, there's people dying. And the first century church n- knew it very well. And, they, you know, part of it was trying to understand why are we dying? Why, why is the church under such persecution? Well, mm. it's all part of um, God bringing about um, his purposes on the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. And as as people um, stand and bear witness to the the truth of the gospel and and stand for God's rule and um, you know uh, bear testimony testimony to what Jesus has done, the, the understanding is the world will come crashing down on you. That's part of what um, the reaction of the world has always been. Mm-hmm. But be reassured in the midst of that, God is not forgetting you. He's not letting you go. The whole point of this is you might lose your life, but you're not lost to God. Mm. Um, that's uh, emphasised again and again and again. You're completely safe um, under his protection, sealed yourself by the Holy Spirit. Mm. We'll now read through chapter 6 and 7. Revelation chapter 6, the seals. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. 
until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth, made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth, as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 sealed. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. The great multitude in white robes. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
Okay. I'll begin with a confession that we've actually broken our recording of this session into two parts because the first 35 minutes and um, setting up some of these important questions and ways of thinking, um, it took a lot longer than, than I first envisaged. But hopefully, hopefully it's helpful. But I would say this, um, exploring a book like Revelation and understanding something as profound and deep as God's judgments of the whole world, this is not a Rubik's Cube to solve. It's not a puzzle to work out that there's, there's things, there's some things that we can understand but we also need to accept how deeply mysterious this is, mm. and that that I'm reminded. I can't remember who it was. Maybe Job or or something like that in the Old Testament that, that say things like, you know, God's ways are not our ways. Mm. Um, we can't fathom the depths of who uh, who God is and how He's carrying out his eternal purpose. Mm. Um, so um, hopefully hopefully you haven't got the sense that we've tried to package up the right answer because that's not, that's not our intention. Ho- hopefully it's about just glimpsing some things that are true that help us um, read these chapters in a, in a way that um, brings some clarity and and encourages encourages us all in our in our faith and in our walk with the Lord. Mm. But sometimes there's things we just have to leave and let God be God a little bit too. I think um, we are we are up to. I, I know I've blown thirty five minutes, but we are up to um, actually having a look at the text now. So we'll have a look at chapter six. Um, uh, which is the which is the account of the breaking of the the first six seals. Um, the first thing to say is, so so you have this you have this um, picture of the lamb opening the first of the seven seals, and um, then one of the four living creatures summoning a figure, which in this case is a rider on a white horse who holds a bow and a crown, and he rides out to conquer. What we we have here is not God's vengeance on the ungodly. That's not the nature of these judgments. What's happening is um, we're getting a glimpse through God revealing it to John, unveiling it to John, of the course of world history and, and how... What the outcome for humanity has been of this rebellion against the great king that's gone on for, for all of history and is resolved at the cross. Mm. And, and now we're seeing, we're seeing in these, uh, the, these visions of the opening of these seals the different spiritual forces at work in the world um, that, that actually lay bare the raw brutality of human history of human rebellion against God. And the first four, um, the first four are right, these, what come to be known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, 
these, they, this picture of horsemen riding out to uh, um, enact judgments on the earth um, comes from Zechariah 6. We won't read it, but, but the picture of horsemen um, on different coloured horses, etc., it's almost identical to what's going on um, in Zechariah 6. And it, it's important to recognise these aren't good forces, um, we've said that before, but they are completely under God's orders. W what they can do and the damage that they can inflict is limited by God's word and the instructions that they've been given. Sure. The other thing to say is there's a relationship between each of the first four. So we'll see that um, uh, the actions of the first rider actually lead and um, in a logical way to the outcome which which is expressed by the second rider and that in turn leads to a logical consequence which is the third rider etc mm -hmm. so um that's that's helpful to see as well probably the last thing to say is i don't read these figures of the four horsemen as one-off figures in history it's not as though we're, we're on the lookout for the rider on the red horse or whatever mm. what what i'm seeing here is these are these are um a reoccurring pattern of how human rebellion against God's rule manifests itself in the world, and that's being unveiled. Um, this is this is the consequences, and these are the spiritual forces. There's a, there's an actual spiritual reality behind the terrible devastation that's wreaked on the earth as a result of human rebellion. So, just going through each of the four horses. Um, in turn, the first one I think is the most interesting, this rider on a white horse, um, and he's um, given a crown, which is, which is um, a symbolic um, picture of being given authority, um, and he's, he's given authority to go out and conquer. So I, really, I, I recognise in this figure, you know, this is, this is that lust for power and control that's unleashed in the world. Um, something that we see in every generation um, in different parts of the world at different times in all of history. And what's interesting about this, this spiritual lust for power and control is that um, there's, there's much about this picture, the, this rider on the white horse, that actually looks good. Um, normally if we saw something white, you'd, you'd presume, oh, that's something godly. Mm. And it's quite interesting because in Chapter 19 of Revelation, there's another rider on the white horse that's almost described in identical terms as this who goes out to conquer, and that's, that is a figure of Jesus the Messiah. Mm. Um, so what we have here is a false version of mm. Jesus the Messiah. It's a conqueror who um, um, is going out as an imitation of a messianic, a conquering messianic figure, um, and in that sense, it's a This is a deceptive mm. spiritual force that's leading the world astray. That's leading not not to freedom and and um, rescue that the, the true rider on the white horse mm. Jesus offers, but leading to to bondage and evil and destruction. Yeah, it's evil appearing in the guise of good and we see that a lot in revelation don't we there's lots of figures 
that are actually imitating the Trinity or imitating the church or yeah. imitating Jesus the Messiah that are leading the world astray. And this, and this is the first example that we've come across of a deceptive spiritual force that's leading the world not to freedom but to destruction. Mm. Um, this is followed by a rider on a red horse um, and this rider is given authority to take peace from the earth um, and, and is responsible for the devastation of war. So it's like this lust for power and control expressed in this conquering figure. Um, we, the logical consequence is the thing that follows is terrible war. Um, and this rider is given a large sword, um, again, as a symbol of violence, um, a symbol of using power for violent ends and and obviously the association of red with bloodshed um, is also clear here and he's given authority to um, actually it says uh, to make men slay each other so it's not as though um, this rider him uh, this spiritual force itself is responsible for death but it unleashes mayhem in the world that forces human beings or, or um, seduces, seduces or deceives human beings into, into um, pursuing war and the destruction of one another. It's mm. humans destroying humans that's the issue here. Um, this is followed by a rider on a black horse. Um, and this one, this one's interesting because this rider. Um, is holding scales, um, and scales in the Old Testament were associated with markets in particular and, and um, the functioning of economies. Mm. And, and so here you have a picture of a force at work in the world that's about economic devastation. Mm. So this process of conquest and war results in um, ultimately deep famine and suffering for large percentage of the population of the earth and you have mm. you have vo a voice calling out about um, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages which is um, incredibly exorbitant prices for the for the basic staples of life mm. the things that make bread and keep people alive so the idea here is that you um uh, people people can't afford the food that they need to survive. And so the devastation here is through starvation and famine mm. and those sorts of things. It's interesting that um, the other part of uh, what's called out by the living creature is, is do not damage the oil and wine. I don't know how much to make of that. Perhaps it's suggesting um, these are commodities that the rich have generally benefited from. These are cash crops that are bought and sold by the wealthy, they're, they're not the, the basic bread that keeps people alive. Perhaps it's suggesting that um, part of this economic devastation is terrible inequality, that, yeah. that the rich in a sense aren't touched or might even benefit from this state of affairs in the world mm -hmm. where the poor people are the ones that are starving and suffering and dying. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a suggestion of inequality. The last horse in this series of four is a horse is a rider on a pale horse um, that that is death and Hades so the outcome 
of the first three horses is um, this rider is given authority to kill by sword, famine and plague and to take the life of a quarter of the population of the earth. So, again, the scale is mind-blowing. Mm. 25% of the population of the earth uh, lose their life mm. be- because of the unleashing of these fo- these forces in the world. Um it is important to recognise that what God's doing is limiting how far this destruction can go, that far and no further. Okay. Now, um, getting our heads around, you know, a quarter of the earth being caught up and have, having their lives um, wiped out by this devastation is just horrific. Mm. Um. There's a shift with the fifth seal. So I'm now down to to verse 9. The fifth seal is really interesting because uh, I'll I'll read a little bit to you. um, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, so he's looking at the, the temple, John's looking at the temple in heaven and part of the temple complex is the altar on which sacrifices were offered. Um, And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. So these these, um, martyrs are in a sense from the perspective of the heavenly temple uh, standing in the place of a sacrifice. They've been been sacrificed for the sake of the, the, um, the proclamation of the gospel. Um, slain for maintaining the testimony. That is actually for, for staying true, maintaining that their witness to the word of God in, on the earth. What we're seeing here is something really, really significant. The fifth and sixth seal reveal the most powerful force at the back of history, and that is the going forward of the gospel into the world. Mm-hmm. That will have... Um, will produce devastation on a scale that that um, is way more significant than the first four riders. The first implication, though, and we see this with the, the opening of the, the fifth seal, is that there will be um, the, the proclamation of the gospel will just cause this hatred to rise up among the re- uh, rebellious humanity. Mm-hmm. And the result will be this: a terrible oppression will be unleashed on these people, and they'll lose their lives. So, so you have you have a picture of all the martyrs, the people that have died, um, uh, gathered and crying out to the Lord, saying, "You know, come and avenge our blood. We've we've died unjustly." God's response to them is quite interesting. The first thing to say is. Um, and this would have encouraged the Christians in the first century, they haven't been lost to God, these martyrs. They're precious to him. Mm. And and how he responds to them makes really clear how precious that they are. So they call for for justice or to be avenged, and God instead, or or the the lamb instead, gives them a white robe, um, again, which symbolises lives... Uh, dressed in something pure and holy, actually reflecting um, God's life. 
so that so that they are they are made pure and holy by a gift of God. And second, he call, calls on them to wait. He's saying, "Cool your jets." Well, maybe he doesn't say "cool your jets," but um, the idea is wait until the full number have been gathered, of martyrs have been gathered. So the idea is um, uh, the fact that Christians on the earth have lost their life for the sake of the gospel is not something that's caught caught this the great king by surprise. It's part of his purpose that they would suffer like Jesus suffered. And Jesus said that, didn't he, to his disciples? You're going to have trouble in the world. They've they've come after me and killed me, and they'll come after you and kill you too. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is part of the outworking of the powerful proclamation of the gospel, um, that by the blood of the martyrs, the church will go forward. It's been the way for all of history. What we then see is... Um, oh, why is this part of the judgment of the earth? Because uh, how the world receives the gospel, how the world responds to the truth of the the uh, of Jesus, Jesus' person and and work dying on the cross that that is the ultimate um, question that will set the judgment of all of humanity. So, so you have between the fifth and then the sixth seal, um, the outworking, there's a logical connection between five and six. In six, you have the outworking of uh, the consequences of rebellious humanity rejecting the gospel and killing Christians. It will bring enormous wrath um, to the earth, that God, the Lamb will turn up on the earth um, as a consuming fire, and He'll deal with He He, he will deal with um, this rebel this rebellion and massive. It'll be reflected in massive disturbance breaking out in all of His creation. So um, the sixth seal is an amazing picture. Of sort of all of creation being caught up in um, the judgment of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb. So you have a great earthquake and the sun turns black like sackcloth. That's a really interesting picture because sackcloth is associated with mourning and repentance. And it's like creation itself is leading um, living things in mourning and repenting for what's happened on the earth. Mm. Um, The whole moon will turn blood red. The stars in the sky will fall to the earth. Um, um, The sky will recede like a scroll. Mountains and islands will be removed from their place. Um, It's an incredible picture of just um, uh, Creation just receding in the in the face of the the presence of this great king turning up um, to bring judgment. Um, all of these pictures are drawn straight out of the Old Testament, and we won't go and look at all the places. But this picture of the day of God's wrath, which is like the final judgment at the very end of the end, 
We see in Isaiah, we see in Joel chapter 2, Habakkuk, Amos. Jesus himself talks about these sorts of pictures, about um, the, the, um, the moon going red and, you know, signs of the end of the age, etc., in Matthew and Mark, where he's um, sometimes referring to uh, the cross itself and sometimes referring to warning the disciples about a time to come. And, and in particular, what's what Jesus is focusing on is um, when Jerusalem will be destroyed in AD 70. He's saying, you know, watch out for watch out for the signs because this this um, this will be a sign that the end is very close. So um, the human response to to the lamb turning up is that they hide. People would rather die than face the lamb in his wrath. We probably should say something about what wrath is. Um, It's a a old religious word for anger, Mm. holy anger. So you might recall those passages in the Bible that talks about God God being like a consuming fire. What we're talking about is the passion of the lamb, um, and it's a loving passion. Don't don't. It's it, this isn't a bit of vindictive wrath. This is a wrath that's generated out of His holy love, that will turn up and consume everything that is unloving and untrue. That's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, where where there's where there is deep rebellion and unholiness, God God will um, consume it all. Um, and the final and the final comment at the end of the chapter, uh, where human beings are calling calling out, "Fallen us, hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come." And who can stand? So it, um, the chapter finishes with this question: Who can stand in the face of um, this God who and and His Lamb, who is a consuming fire? And in a sense, chapter seven will answer that question. So chapter seven. Um, before we get into chapter seven, just be clear that. What's just happened is the sixth seal has been opened. Mm-hmm. And the sixth seal is about all the signs in nature and creation mm. that point to the day of God's wrath, that, that, that the lamb is going to turn up on the earth um, like a consuming fire. Mm. But, but we're not there yet. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Um, the day of God's wrath hasn't come. All the signs are that it's just round the corner and, and people are sort of saying, uh, hiding away and um, are recognising that it's about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. That's for the seventh seal that we don't actually get to see yet. So between the sixth and the seventh, you have this cry, who can stand in the face, uh, in the face of this lamb that is going to turn up mm. in his holiness? In judgment, um, and chapter seven sort of provide—not sort of—it does provides the answer to the question. The answer is those those that are sealed by God, mm. those that trust in Him and maintain His witness, 
uh, he will protect and preserve mm. and those will, will be able to stand. And we have this amazing picture by the end of Chapter 7 of this great multitude standing around the throne um, and God promising to come not, not to destroy um, and wipe out or whatever, but to come and dwell with and share his life. So um, it's a, it, it's a um, magnificent picture of um, God's heart, saving heart, and wanting to come and dwell with his people. Mm. But we're not there yet. Let's just work through the chapter a little bit. So chapter 7 begins um, uh, with a shift in the vision. John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. It, this is interesting. It's sort of like an ancient perspective of an earth that's flat, which, mm. is, which is interesting. Um Four, four um, in a, 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 apocalyptic um, prophecy often indicates um, something universal, something affecting the whole, like the four corners of the earth means the whole earth is, mm. is there, etc. So you have um, this universal action of these four angels and there's winds blowing on the earth. Um, winds are often a... Um, symbol for a destructive force blowing mm. on the earth. And these angels are holding back the winds. So they're, they're angels of providence that are preserving the earth. Then, um, then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. Interestingly, we've been talking about seals, but this is a different sort of seal. We've been breaking seals in the previous chapter. Mm. But, but here, this is the seal of the living God um, that, that is going to um, be used to actually protect his people. Um, and this angel called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land and the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So, what we have, what what's going on here is that um, God has sent His angel to actually protect, uh, mark out a people for His name from among the people on the earth that are going to be protected and preserved in the face of destruction that's going to come, and the destruction um, can only come once they're protected. That that's the picture. So what does it mean to seal? Well, you put a seal on something that's your possession for a start, if it's a document or something um, precious. In the ancient world, seals were very important for that. Um, and, it, and it signified that something belonged to you and that you had authority over it as well. Mm -hmm. only, only authorised people could open seals. The other, the other really powerful... Um, way to understand what's going on here is that um, for the early church, sealing, the, the idea of being sealed was um, a, an image that was associated with the work of the, the Holy Spirit. So if you have a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, 14, Paul says this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation having believed you are marked in him with a seal the promised holy spirit 
who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So that idea of Christians being sealed is is strongly associated with the reception of the Holy Spirit. So um, the reality behind the picture is that God himself will come and dwell in you and and that that your life will be joined to his in in this unbreakable bond. And that's what the coming of the Spirit, um, um, that's what the reality of the coming of the Spirit means for human beings. Um, you're joined to God's life in, in that permanent, unbreakable covenant bond. And so um, the, the picture in Revelation is being sealed on the forehead. That is having your mind um, sealed on your mind. Um, in other places in Revelation, that idea is like to receive God's name, etc. But very much the picture is one of being marked as God's possession, um, and that experience for Christians is is the reception of the Spirit. It's a picture that comes from actually another one of Ezekiel's um, prophecies. We won't go into um, going and reading it, but if you wanted to look it up, it's in Ezekiel chapter 9 where Ezekiel has a vision of um, faithful Jews, a remnant of the Jews being sealed in the midst of the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem. Jerusalem's about to fall to the Babylonians. And the promise is that, that those that are faithful, God will preserve. He'll preserve his remnant. And it doesn't mean that they won't die. They may well die. What it means is they won't be lost to God. He'll look after them. Whether they live or die, they're, they'll, they'll, they're eternally his. Mm. And, and it's the same picture here in the book of Revelation. Being sealed doesn't mean that you're exempt from the, the winds that are going to blow across the earth. Um, but what it means is you'll never be lost to God. Um, then we have the, the um, much debated section where the, the vision um, starts to look at um, this remnant in terms of the 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And we get a list there of 12,000 from every tribe. So um, we get to just some basic maths. We get to 144,000 because you have 12 tribes of Israel and from each tribe you have 12,000. I'm utterly convinced this isn't literal. So whoever, what group thinks it is? Is it the Jehovah's Witness or the, um, you know, there's one group that think that there's only going to be 144,000 literally people that will be saved. Yeah. That, that's not at all what's going on here. This is a representative symbolic picture mm. of the fact that God's going to save a remnant people from out of the earth that are his. Mm. And, and 12 times 12 is the idea of it's going to be perfectly complete. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a picture, it's a symbolic picture of fullness, the full, um, that there'll be a complete remnant. There'll be no, no one missing. It'll be per, per, perfect, 12 times 12,000. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the vision then, then powerfully shifts um, from, from looking down at the earth to looking back at heaven. So um, verse 9 to verse 17 is one of the most... Um, 
spine tingling, uh, what would you say, encouraging, exciting um, visions of, of the multitude in heaven around the throne in all the book. So uh, John says, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Mm. Now, I think what's interesting about this is the contrast between a, a contained remnant, remnant, 12 times 12,000, and here you've got a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that you can't even no. count. Um, that's the whole point. The whole point is there's not going to be a fixed number. It's going to be more than you can even possibly imagine that will ultimately um, be saved and and be with God um, before his throne sharing his life. Um, And it recalls the picture from chapter 4 and 5 in the throne room, but but this is even an expansion on, on, on that picture. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, again, wearing white, we've seen this before with the martyrs. This is is an idea, this is the idea that um, this multitude um, will will be explained um, later in the section that um, this multitude have had their robes washed and they've been made white by the blood of the Lamb. So that that idea that that this is a people made righteous by the gift of um, God's life given in Jesus, that that, that by Jesus' shed blood that they're actually washed white as snow, made holy Mm. and represented in the robes that they're wearing. Um, the fact that they're holding palm branches and rejoicing is really significant as well. What story does that remind you of from the New Testament, Hannah? Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Yeah, it's a, it, it, yeah, it recalls that triumphal entry of, of Jerusalem celebrating the Messiah um, coming into the into the into the city on a donkey. Um, um, the the waving of palm branches is strongly connected with a particular festival in the life of Israel that applied to that week of the triumphal en- entry um, but apl- applies more broadly to the to the story of Israel through the Old Testament as well. The waving of palm branches was a, a tradition that was connected to the Feast of the Tabernacles or it was sometimes called the Feast of the Harvests. Mm. Um, and the, this feast... Really had two parts to it. It was it was a it was a um, a festival of Israel that that was um, at the beginning of harvest time, where you bought your um, the the product of your um, farm or whatever to God, and it was about thanking God for His provision for providing and the fruitfulness of the harvest. Mm. Um, so it was like a harvest festival. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles was also strongly connected with the way God had rescued his people from Egypt and um, watched over them, shielded them with his presence in the wilderness um, and came and dwelt with them. And so they, the idea of tabernacling is the idea of pitching a tent 
And it's the idea of God came and pitched his tent with us. And so with this festival, people would go out and um, make a tabernacle or pitch a tent as a reminder of God coming to dwell with them. Um, so you have that idea of um, God's provision represented in a bountiful harvest and you have that picture of God's protection uh, reflected in his coming to dwell with his people in their wilderness wanderings and taking them out of Egypt. So, um, again, two uh, waving palm branches then it is is something strongly connected with the saving work of God with his people Israel. Mm. And so the cry that they, um, that this great multitude yell out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, um, um, is another part of the picture that we're seeing here. And then you have this interesting little conversation. Um, the worship continues. Then you have this interesting little conversation between John and one of the elders who sidles up to him and says, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And, and John answers, sir, you know, um, and he said, and what the elder said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Um, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Um, the great tribulation is, is this idea of, of a, period of a period of suffering on the earth before the end, before the day of the Lord. Um, Matthew 24, 21 uses exactly the same phrase. Jesus uses the same phrase to warn the disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem in um, 70 AD. Mm -hmm. um, so that's helpful because one of the things about the Great Tribulation that you often hear is that is, is this some sort of future period that's going, going to happen right at the end of the age. Maybe, maybe not, but the point being made in this, in terms of the use of the phrase here is, it is just describing a period of intense suffering on the earth before the end. Now, um, the way it's used here makes me think that it applies to first century martyrs and and the time that we live in as much as any time at the end of the age. Mm -hmm. The whole point is um, John is wanting to encourage these um, suffering churches in the first century that uh, God's going to bring them through this time of suffering and that, that everything's okay and, and that their, their hope is that they, that they will be um, not lost to God They'll have washed robes and, and that they'll be part of this throng around the, uh, around the throne. So in my view, the Great Tribulation is the period from the um, resurrection of Jesus right into the, to, to when he returns again. This, this whole period for churches and for individuals and people throughout history um, during this period where the proclamation of the gospel is going forth is, in a sense, a great tribulation. Mm -hmm. um, 
then then you have the the last little bit, which is almost like a song. I'll read it to you. Um, so the elder goes on. Therefore, they are are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. That's literally the idea of He will tabernacle over them. So it's picking up on that tabernacling theme that we were. Yeah. That that idea that he will pitch his tent and shield them with his um, by by his presence, and then you have then you have this um, classic Jewish sevenfold blessing: never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. The Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Um, it's a beautiful picture of God's eternal purpose, and that um, out of suffering will come uh, great joy and blessing and shared life. Um, that classic picture halfway through that little passage of a lamb at the center of the throne who will be their shepherd and lead them to springs of living water, recalls um, Psalm 23. It recalls Jesus' words in um, John chapter 10. Um, I'll read that one to you. Um, this is John chapter 10, 27 to 30. Where are we? My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand and I and the Father are one. So that, that, that idea of um, the protective, um, loving instincts of the shepherd looking after his people and providing for them. Um, again, you can imagine the encouragement this, that, that this picture would have been to the churches in Asia Minor struggling in the midst of great persecution, that, that in the middle of it all, God's going to protect them and save them and, and will answer to them um, like, like a shepherd to sheep. Um, and and they'll dwell with this with with God and with the Lamb. He he will come to dwell with them, and there'll be no more suffering, and they'll be washed clean and led by the Lamb. And it's a life uh, full of joy. Um, it recalls um, um, the great sort of Paul's great uh, soaring. What what would you call it? It's exclamation or prayer at the end of um, Romans chapter 8. And I might just finish reading that to you where, where he's, he's sort of celebrating and reflecting on um, God's covenant love and what it, what it means for his people. And it sort of sums up what we're talking about here. Um, so Romans chapter 8, you'll, you'll all know this passage, but it's good to read it again just to finish that God would create a people for his name, that he would, he would dwell with and that could never be separated from him. So Paul says this, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So a sentence to finish. In the, in the context of the revelation of these extraordinary judgments going out into the earth that's producing mayhem and suffering and misery for so much of the population of the world through history. In the middle of all that, you have God in the midst of his people preserving, preserving those that belong to him, caring for them, providing for them, protecting them and leading them to life and living water.